Conspiracy theorist or conspiracy theory was a term coined by the CIA to stop people asking questions about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This term conspiracy theorist now comes with an enormous amount of negative connotations, so no one really wants to go near it. No one wants to be labelled a conspiracy theorist. Many of the conspiracy theorists aren't really what it says on the tin, but just people questioning our government's agenda. It's hard to actually believe that people in power conspire against their very people, but more and more are actually realising that they have been doing this for a very long time. One such conspiracy theory is depopulation. One only has to look at the recently destroyed Georgia Guidestones in which it states there are too many people on the planet using too many resources. Whether you believe that or not to be true doesn't really matter because the people in power do. Eugenicists believe this is true and have positioned themselves into places of vast power and influence and seem to be implementing the very thing that frightens us all, population control. But we have human rights, I hear you say, that will make it virtually impossible for this to happen. Do we? Filming in case anything happens to us. Tell me. There's no going back from this deal. Everything will change for you once you know. Tell me. I believe we are enslaved in a society where we will not be free to think or feel or do anything other than consume. Slaves for work to buy things beyond our means, living in fear of terrorism. I believe this is to blindside us, trick us into a situation where they, the powers that be, will wipe us out. Kill most of us. Kill all of us here. They are going to reduce the population. That is what I believe. 
sad to think that there may need to be a population limit on the earth. Maybe there does. We can't keep on doing what we're doing. There will be a global population reduction until there are only 500 million people there. Although I believe that this planet can support 2 billion humans perfectly comfortably. How do you know that? It's a question of space and the resources that space has. And using those resources to survive and not exploiting them. Almost 7 billion humans use too many resources. This leads to a very uncertain future for us all. Right, climate change. Climate change occurs naturally. That's why we have the Ice Age. So now you're telling me that climate change is fake? As you know it. Why do you recycle? Why do you recycle? I'm doing my bit. So you're trying to save the planet? Yeah. How precious of you to think that you could save the planet. If she needed saving, especially from us, she'd just wipe us out. Hypothetically, if we want to conserve 80% of the planet's resources, then we should get rid of, or cull, that 20% of the population who are consuming them, yeah? Hypothetically, I guess that would be a solution. Yeah, the final solution. We use so much of the planet's resources, but there's just no balance. Soon we would have depleted the resources so much that life can't be sustained. And then everything would die. How would they reduce the population? We're not stupid. Hitler said, the bigger the lie, the more the people will believe it. I think it would be done, Hitler style. The armed forces are going to kill us. They'll follow orders. It's what they've been trained to do. They're being taught to be racists. The army are already killing people in other countries. People in power are using fear to fuel the racism. How long before they use this racism to make soldiers turn on their own? Innocent people. Living in a police state. So it had begun. Controlling and monitoring the movement of individuals within the society. Putting chips in passports. ID cards. CCTV. They're using this orchestrated ruse to convince the public to accept Big Brother-type controls. And then they will intentionally reduce the mass of the world's population. Mass genocide on a scale never seen before. There are a mass of ways they could introduce population slaughter. More staged events, orchestrated and maneuvered conflicts, and the use of bioengineered diseases. Vaccines. It could come in vaccines. Women are being encouraged to get sterilized. What if they're using cervical cancer jabs? Not this generation, but the next. Prevention and cure for cancer. Or having babies. That's madness. You're right. They never wait two generations. In the event that I'm reincarnated, I'd like to come back as a deadly virus. So it's a contribute to solving overpopulation. Prince Philip said that. Bioengineered pathogens are being created to eliminate ethnic groups such as blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, 
homosexuals. Homosexuals? Surely that would keep the population down. Yes, but it's not nature's way. Love is not a factor when you're dealing with how the few procreate. Natural selection, where the only natural element is the powers that be. Population control already happens in China. You have to have a license before you can have a second child. Come on, Dion. How many times have you thought about how unfair it is that you have to work to have a good life, whereas others breed and breed and get given benefits and homes? How often have you wondered, like many others, what real value they bring to the world? Population reduction programs eliminate a mind-blowing 95% of the population. Eugenics is the pseudoscience culling the excess population. Fake science. It can be done in a barbaric fashion using draconian methods, and this global holocaust will probably come out from under the flag of the UN. You can almost imagine us being frog-marched away from our homes in a martial law kind of way, and no one bats an eyelid. Almost 95% of the population. 13 out of every 14 people killed, destroyed, and murdered. In order to stabilize world population, they need or want to dispose of six and a half billion people. That was, of course, just a scene from a film, a film called One by One by Diane Jesse Miller. It was released in 2013, and you may have recognized one of the actors in the scene. It was, of course, the late, great Rick Mayle. Now, Rick Mayle also said... Viewers, you don't know who the cameraman is. You know why you're being able to see these things. Why? You're seeing me. I can't even see you. I may be dead by the time you watch this. Very possibly are. You don't know who's the man who's making things he wants you to see. Destroy your television sets. Now, you must listen to no orders. That's all I can tell you from this point of view. Now, he could have just been playing up to the camera. Of course, I understand that. But that, we will never know. The film One by One has become very popular among the Truth Seekers community. And I might be wrong on this, but there are a lot of similarities in the film that are being played out today or in the last few years. And you can only say coincidence so many times before coincidence becomes obsolete. Like I said, I may be wrong and I hope to God I am, but coincidence is losing its shine. And what we've witnessed these last few years has maybe started the ball rolling on population control. Again, I hear you say, we have human rights. Well, did your human rights stop you from being locked down for months at a time? Or did they stop you being forced to take the COVID-19 vaccinations? No, they didn't. Our governments and their influencers don't care about your human rights. That's for sure. And human rights are being changed as I speak to you. Yes, right now. Human rights are not rights, but rather government permits. 
authorised by self-declared saviours. Government has invented human rights so that it can pretend to be doing the right thing. The UK government is introducing the UK's new Bill of Rights. And if you don't know what this will mean, let me explain. The UK government's proposed modern Bill of Rights is designed to provide it with a legal framework to completely ignore all of our rights. It is the keystone for the new UK dictatorship. Contrary to government claims, it has no power to define, alter, restrict or otherwise control our rights. In point of fact, no one does. All government can do is deceive us into imagining that it has this supernatural ability. Whether government establishes a modern bill of rights or not, it will make no difference to our rights. They remain entirely intact, regardless of the whims of government. Unfortunately, millions of people don't know this and continue to imagine that governments can limit their rights. In, in order for the con to work, all that is required is that the people can see their fallacy, namely the rights and are bestowed upon the people by governments. They are not. If we accept the government's assertion that it does create rights, we also have to accept the consequences. The government's claim then does have an impact upon our perceived rights and consequently our lives, but only if we believe that the government is magic. As the majority does maintain this belief in magical governments, many are led to argue that our real rights are materially irrelevant. Government uses force to compel us to act or desist. Therefore, they say, to all intents and purposes, rights are effectively granted by government. This view holds sway. It is commonly expressed as the widely held delusion that so-called human rights are rights. Human rights are not rights, but rather government permits, like I said, authorised by self-declared superheroes or saviours. If we continue to reject the existence of our real rights, preferring to believe in the fiction of human rights, then the inevitable consequence is oppression and tyranny. And that is precisely what the UK government's modern Bill of Rights is intended to deliver. So what are rights? In 1882, Lysander Spooner wrote Natural Law or the Science of Natural Justice. He explained how rights operate in nature. The key to understanding rights is that they are not dependent upon the laws of men and women. No human being defines our individual rights. They are inherent to natural law. Natural law is the universal law of all human interactions that precedes and supersedes all positive law created by kings and queens, courts and legislators. Natural law prevails independently of our existence on earth and we neither control nor influence it.
nor by extension do we have any ability to determine natural justice or inalienable rights. The adjective unalienable rights is historically of very similar meaning to the adjective inalienable. Spooner wrote, natural law, natural justice, a principle that is naturally applicable and adequate to the rightful settlements of every possible controversy that we can arise among men. The only standard by which any controversy, whatever, between man and man can be rightfully settled. An immutable principle, one that is always and everywhere at the same time, in all ages and nations, self-evidently necessary in all times and places, so entirely impartial and equitable towards all, so indispensable to the peace of mankind everywhere, so vital to the safety and welfare of every human being, so easily learned, so generally known, and so easily maintained by such voluntary associations as all honest men can readily and rightfully form for that purpose. That was written by Spooner, of course, like I said. Now, natural law is an internal, immutable truth that contradicts the postmodernist rejection of objective reality. But we don't need philosophical discourse to comprehend natural law. It can be demonstrated using simple logic. So let's consider the example of the positive laws, those created by human beings, which specify that the act of theft is a crime. So think about the first court of the first Sumerian king, or whoever was the first king that initially proclaimed that theft was henceforth illegal. How could the court possibly have created any such law unless it already understood what personal property was and grasped the difference between right and wrong? Where did the concept of a right to possess something called property come from prior to the existence of positive law? How did the court know that infringing that right was wrong? On what basis did it determine that the act of theft was morally unacceptable in the first place? The answer is simple, quite simple if you think about it. Human beings don't define what is right and wrong. We merely come to recognise it. This is natural law and it already governed the conduct of human beings long before they could record it in official documents. Natural law enabled humanity to live in relative harmony for hundreds of thousands of years before it developed any written kind of language. All living creatures have no choice but to abide by natural law. Natural spontaneous order must exist for termites to construct their mounds and for lions to live in prides dolphins to live in pods, and of course human beings to live in civilizations. Without natural law, the universe would be nothing but chaos. It's the law of, of cause and effect, of action and consequence, and it determines the motion of the spheres, just as it determines the repercussions of our behaviour. 
Like any natural phenomenon, we can study natural law as a science and subsequently learn to live by the principles of natural justice that we discover. Justice too, then, is a natural phenomenon and is the restoration of right when a wrong has been committed. We can return to the only possible condition for peace, equilibrium under natural law. Spooner said, the science of mine and thine, the science of justice, is the science of all human rights, of all a man's rights of person and property, of all his rights to, to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It's the science which alone can tell any man what he can and cannot do, what he can and cannot have, and what he can and cannot say without infringing the rights of any other person. If we understand this, then rights according to Spooner can be expressed very simply. The ancient maxim makes the sum of a man's legal duty to his fellow men to be simply this, to live honestly, to hurt no one, and to give to everyone his due. This entire maxim is really expressed in the single words to live honestly, since to live honestly is to hurt no one and give to everyone his due. For Spooner to live an honest life, to be honourable in all deeds and contracts is the entire extent of human beings' legal duty. Unfortunately, in a postmodernist world where government is determined to ignore natural law, even something as simple as to live honestly, which is straightforward enough for most people to understand, requires further e explanation for some. Real rights are not human rights. They are the natural, inalienable rights we are born with. They can be understood quite easily and summed up thus. All human beings are born with equal rights. These rights are inalienable. Wrong is an act that causes harm or loss to other human beings. Everything we do that is not wrong, that is, any act that does not cause harm or loss to another human being, is therefore right. Inalienable rights are any and all human actions that do not cause harm or loss to any other human being. Every action that is right is an inalienable right. I hope you can understand that. So to define inalienable rights, though for some the notion of inalienable rights may seem strange, even impossible to understand, it is in fact a commonly held concept familiar to many of the great leaders who authored some of the seminal documents in world political history. The US Declaration of Independence, for example, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Note that these, right, these rights do not emanate from the statues declarations of what law what is lawful basically 
of some high-ranking political office. They are not royally decreed or legislated into existence, nor adjusted, adjudged, adjudged to be valid by any court. They are endowed upon all equally, without deviation or exception. Inalienable rights are bestowed upon us by nature itself. We each possess equal inalienable rights simply by virtue of being alive. Also note that for the founding fathers of the United States, this was an, ab ab an absolute truth that was self-evident. The preamble to the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights states, recognition of the inheritance, uh, inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. Justice and peace are existent only when the conditions are precisely as Spooner described in 1882. There simply cannot be peace in the world without stringent observance of everyone's equal inalienable rights by all and, and an abiding commitment never to infringe them. Spooner spe specified that only two conditions required to maintain justice and peace in the world. These conditions are simply these. Each man shall do towards every other all that justice requires him to do. The second condition is that each man shall abstain from doing to another anything which justice forbids him to do. So long as these conditions are fulfilled, men are at peace and ought to remain at peace with each other. But when either of these conditions is violated, men are at war and they must necessarily remain at war until justice is re-established. The general accepted legal definition of inalienable rights reads, the term given to the fundamental rights accorded to, the, or to all people. So as stated in the US Declaration of Independence, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and even the Standby Common Law Legal Dictionary defi uh, Definition, inalienable rights are equal, equally shared by every person on the planet. No one, whether they claim themselves to be a legislator, a king or whatever, has any additional rights beyond the rights commonly held by all. No one has the additional right to decide the rights of others. No one possesses extra rights to restrict the rights of others. And as all rights are inalienable and immutable, no one has the added right to give away or cede their own inalienable rights to anyone else. And that is to anyone else. So if we look at the UK's new Bill of Rights, or as it should be called, the UK's Bill of No Rights, governments despise inalienable rights. Such rights prescribe individual sovereignty. And no government is willing to acknowledge that it does not have total domination over its subjects. 
The Sander Spooner understood this perfectly well. And he raised the question, if natural law, natural justice, and the observance of inalienable rights are all we need to firmly establish justice and peace in the world, why don't we practice natural law? Why do we instead insist upon obeying the laws made up by unscrupulous men and women who write them to protect their own power, privilege and authority? Spooner concluded that why is it that any human being ever conceived that anything so self-evidently superfluous, false, absurd and atrocious as all legislation necessarily must be? could be any use to mankind at all, or have any place in human affairs? The answer is that through all historic times, <clears throat> whenever any people learned to increase their means of subsistence, a greater or less number of them have associated and organised themselves as robbers to plunder and enslave everyone else. These tyrants living solely on plunder and on the labour of their slaves, and applying all their energies to the seizure of still more plunder, and the, and the enslavement of still other defenceless persons, extend their conquests until, in order to hold what they have already got, it becomes necessary for them to act systematically and cooperate with each other in holding their slaves in subjection. But all this they can do only by establishing what they call a government and making what they call laws. Government has invented human rights, basically, so that it can pretend that these fake rights have humanitarian value. This is done simply to convince us that government defines rights for our benefit. As long as we continue to believe this, Government can amend, restrict or remove these meaningless proclamations and in doing so convince us that it has genuinely changed the nature of our rights. In its proposal for a new Bill of Rights, the UK government claims the government wants to introduce a Bill of Rights in a way that protects people's fundamental rights whilst safeguarding the broader public interest. For that framework to work, it must command public confidence, they said. Now, that is partly true. If we didn't believe in the government's magical powers, then it claims to be able to limit our rights and subsequent freedoms would be treated as a risable nonsense that it is. The deceptive language is the verb. The government's claim that it wants to protect our fundamental rights even if we set aside the consideration that government has no say over our fundamental rights, the rest of the UK's, uh, UK government's proposal reveals this statement to be a lie in all other aspects too. We get the first hint uh, where the government is heading with this envisioned new bill of rights with its claimed desire to safeguard the public interest the government has decided that observing our rights is not in our interest. It defines the public interest and in doing so assumes the additional right to ignore our rights and freedoms as it pleases. Citing a couple of extreme and 
quite frankly, ridiculous examples of people exploiting the European Convention on Human Rights, the ECHR. That's an instrument of international law signed by the post-war UK government and transposed decades later directly into UK law as the Human Rights Act with obvious intent to cause the authorities problems. The UK government has decided that these outliers constitute what it uh, solemnly declares to be a rights culture. It claims that this alleged rights culture has displaced due focus on personal responsibility and the public interest. A few prisoners causing as much mayhem as possible within the law is proof enough for the UK government that all of us are morally inept. Therefore, we need to accept the government's suggestion that our rights should be curtailed to protect the public interest. The allegation and claimed justification are pre uh, <clears throat> preposterous, but so what? As long as it gets what it wants, why should the government care? The government also adds, while human rights are universal, a Bill of Rights could require the courts to give greater consideration to the behaviour of claimants and the wider public interest when interpreting and balancing qualified rights. Human rights are not rights. And if any statement ever illustrated that point, it's the one just cited. How can human rights be universal while some are qualified rights? Qualified by whom? And as David Scott sought in vain to elicit from police last year, on what basis? The answer provided by the government is shocking, but at least has the merit of honesty. The government believes that Parliament should authoritarian. Uh, authoritatively determine what is necessary in a democratic society. In addition, it should be clear that when a court is considering the proportionately, uh, proportionality of an interference with a person's qualified rights, it will consider the extent to which the person has fulfilled their own relevant responsibilities. <sighs> qualified rights are rights whose scope is whatever the state decrees from time to time. Simple. You may think that you have the right to free speech, but if the government thinks that you're saying something it considers to be, let's say, irresponsible or inappropriate or even harmful, <clears throat> such as speaking out against vaccine damage or questioning one of the government's proxy wars, your free speech has just become a qualified right, at which point the government's pet courts will take a dim view of your so-called human rights. To hammer this message home in its proposal, the government issued its directions to the independent courts on qualified rights. The following clauses are for guiding the interpretation of qualified rights. Option one, requires the court to give great weight to Parliament's views on what is necessary in a dem democratic society. 
when determining whether legislation or a decision of a public authority made in accordance with legislation is compatible with the rights under the Bill of Rights. The UK courts are largely an extension of state power anyway, but the UK government with its new Bill of Rights, with its talk of clarifying the separation of powers, is now closing the gap between the executive and judiciary to the imperceptible. <clears throat> the problem that it has identified is that the public can occasionally enforce a few rights that the judiciary and, and jury still have the gumption to recognise. The UK government does not like this at all, it says. The courts have expanded the scope of human rights from protecting individuals to prescribing how public services must be delivered. The growth in such obligations comes without proper democratic oversight from Parliament or the benefit of public policy decisions taken in the broader public interest by those elected to do so. This has created a democratic deficit. According to the UK government then, a democratic deficit emerges when the courts rule against the state, especially when the ruling contradicts the impossible, additional right that government has claimed for itself to define what is good for all, the so-called public interest, as I spoke about earlier. An independent judiciary is therefore anti-democratic in this novel scheme. Consequently, the government is shoving through a new Bill of Rights that will ignore the actual Bill of Rights and democratic ideals entirely in order to save democracy from itself. <laughs> the use of secondary legislation has become increasingly beloved of the UK government. Its century-long misuse is wholly undemocratic, which rather bellies the government's ludicrous pretensions of protecting democracy. Secondary legislation enables government ministers using powers granted to them in corresponding acts of parliament or primary legislation to pronounce so-called law with little or no parliamentary scrutiny. This is most often achieved in the form of statutory instruments, SIs, Parliament can technically approve or deny, but cannot amend affirmative statutory instruments. So the Joint Committee on Statutory Instruments, the JCSI, advises Parliament if it decides there is anything to be concerned about. However, the JCSI only hears evidence from the government and only issues a recommendation to Parliament if it, if it identifies an issue. Even this depends, of course, upon whatever the executive branch of government chooses to disclose to the C, uh, JCSI. If the JCSI fails to see a problem with a given instrument, it is extremely unlikely that Parliament, the, the legislative branch of government, will see one either. The vast majority of SIs are made negative and do not require any approval from Parliament. This means the instrument becomes law the moment the Minister signs it, 
unless Parliament objects within 40 days. Unsurprisingly, this is practically unheard of. Law in modern Britain is habitually created by fiat without any notable parliamentary scrutiny at all. Parliament explains the purpose of secondary legislation quite eloquently. <laughs> it says to fill in the details of acts or the primary legislation. These details provide practical measures that enable the law to be enforced and operate in daily life. Motions to stop negative SIs are very, very rare. And the, chance, <clears throat> and the chances of a motion succeeding even more remote. The House of Commons last blocked one back in 1979 and the House of Lords back in the year 2000. The UK government, it really likes this despotic legal system. It can pass sprawling and incomprehensible primary legislation without defining any of the most crucial precepts the new law is supposedly based upon. For example, the government is almost certainly going to manage to pass the forthcoming Online Safety Act, which is frightening. But it hasn't even bothered to explain what key terms such as harm or disinformation actually mean. Parliament will rubber stamp the Online Safety Bill into law as an act and will empower the executive, that's the Crown Ministers, subsequently to use negative SIs which members of parliament, they won't even read, let alone oppose. The executive will prescribe whatever its, its favoured NGOs and international partners want to call disinformation or harm as it sees fit, whenever it chooses, using secondary legislation. The new law can be enforced and operate in daily life in the absence of any genuine parliamentary scrutiny or debate. This is just about as dictatorial as it gets, but that's the way government operates in reality. It really does. <laughs> as noted by the Independent Human Rights Act review, the government acknowledges that the current ability of the courts to issue a declaration of, of incompatibility, whereby they can find secondary legislation to be in the con uh, contravention of the claimant's human rights. The courts can effectively overrule secondary legislation, thus compelling the source of that instrument to be amended. Under the law as it stands, the courts can amongst other things, declare secondary legislation invalid or disapply the provision in question. The government alleges that this is a real problem, though the IHRAR notes that the government's assertion that the courts have adopted an expansive approach is totally unfounded. Undeterred, the government insists that the courts needs to be told how to interpret an individual's rights. This will ensure that government addicts on whatever is necessary in a democratic society are steadfastly enforced. Sneaky, ain't they? They are very sneaky. It says, 
We believe that Section 3 of the Human Rights Act has resulted in an expansive approach with courts adapting legislation. We think that a less expansive interpretive duty would provide greater legal certainty. We believe Section 3 should be replaced by an alternative provision setting out clearly how to interpret legislation where legislation was ambiguous and a meaning that could reasonably be attributed to it was compatible with the convention, the HRA, and other meanings were not. The compatible meaning would be preferred. The government is minded to codify uh, or codify the approach under primarily primary legislation. <coughs> So as the current law stands, a citizen could hypothetically, though barely in any practical sense, overturn the government's authoritarian diktat in the courts if his alleged human rights were infringed. In recognition of that loophole, the UK government's new Bill of Rights intends to snuff out that possibility once and for all. The UK government claims that this is all necessary to protect the public interest by placing an authoritarian duty upon the courts, effectively to agree with whatever the executive decrees. Government is claiming the non-existent right to define everyone's individual rights on a case-by-case -case basis. In other words, dictatorship. The Law Society, you know, the Professional Association of English Solicitors, the pre-trial lawyers, it's issued a damning response to this, to the government's suggested reforms and to the consultation held regarding them. The lawyers write that they were unable to identify anything in the proposed new Bill of Rights other than a litany of prospective rights abuses and, at and an attack upon individual freedoms. The Law Society found that the UK government's plans would damage the rule of law, prevent access to justice, increase costs and uh, complexity, and lead those who can afford it to make more cases to the European Court of Human Rights, while excluding those who cannot afford it from any realistic recourse to the law. They said a significant number of the proposals work to either reduce government accountability or to shield public bodies from it. This undermines a crucial element of the rule of law, preventing people from challenging illegitimate uses of power. It is alarming that proposals include the removal of rights on a blanket basis from certain categories of individuals. Others would reduce protections or lead to an overall lowering of human rights standards. The proposed reforms contained in this consultation will have far-reaching uh, far impact for anyone seeking to enforce their rights and access their human rights protections. Wow. As often... This time in the form of the Law Society, 
we see an establishment body that perceives abuses but can't or won't face the reality of what our government actually is. Government neither serves the public nor upholds the rights of ordinary citizens. It purely exists to crush and exploit them for corporate profit, to bend the public to its will in the name of progress and to oppress its population. Government has absolutely no interest in defending our democracy. As George Carling said, it's a big club and we ain't in it. While the intervention of the Law Society is welcome, its solicitor members, perhaps for the reasons of their own vested interest, do not offer any real solutions. Their recommendations all, reply, uh, all rely upon reasonable forbearance of the corporate and political establishments and its government. There is no evidence in modern Britain to suggest that such restraint exists. Government is not on our side and it quite clearly means to rule us with an iron fist. Its proposed new Bill of Rights demonstrates that fact. The solutions will only come when we learn the lessons taught by the likes of Spooner. While we continue to implore this thing called government to be nice to us, we're lost. It will simply continue to tell itself to do as thou will. We have equal inalienable rights and the government has absolutely nothing of any value to say, to say about them. <clears throat> the government's opinion about our rights is quite frankly irrelevant. No one in government, in the judiciary system or at the top of the global corporations or international financial institutions has any more nor fewer rights than you and I. So the conclusion is we allow government to pretend that it has the power to determine our rights because we continue to fall for the deception of human rights. If we wish to prosper and live in peace, we must resoundedly reject this malign deceit. And when we do, the government's only remaining power will be to continue to abuse our inalienable rights and all we see its actions for what they truly are. If government refuses to acknowledge our inalienable rights, then it is both opposed to humanity and has no wish to maintain justice and peace in the world. Such an institution is a clear threat to our existence as a species. We should use all the peaceable means at our disposal to reform governments and to insist that its and its courts never breach natural law, natural justice or our inalienable rights. But as frequently discussed, our ability to engage in effective resistance, to lobby and protest, campaign and speak without censorship is also currently being removed by our government. Violence is both morally indefensible and counterproductive when we are faced with a political system that operates and thrives on the use of force. So what are we to do when preyed upon by tyrannical governments opposed to peace?
Perhaps the answers may be found in the wisdom of those legal philosophers who have faced this seemingly eternal dilemma before. When a nation is constrained by the fortune of war to serve a single clique, one should not be amazed that the nation obeys, but simply be grieved by the situation. But, oh, good Lord, what strange phenomenon is this, to see an endless multitude of people not merely obeying, but driven to servility. They suffer plundering, wantonness, cruelty, not from any army, but from a single little man. This cannot be called cowardly, for cowardice does not sink to such depths. What monstrous vice, then, is this which does not even deserve to be called cowardice? Obviously, there is no need of fighting to overcome this single tyrant, for he is automatically defeated if the country refuses consent to its own enslavement. It is not necessarily to deprive him of anything, but simply to give him nothing. If not one thing is yielded to them, if without any violence they are simply not obeyed, they become naked and undone, and as nothing. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight and break into pieces. That was Etienne de la Beauté from the book, The Politics of Obedience. Most of the information on this piece about the UK's new Bill of Rights was sourced from Ian Davis from Unlimited Hangouts. Go and check him out. They're absolutely brilliant. And thanks for staying with me on such a mundane subject to most, but I believe such an important one. I recently went on a long country walk with an old dear friend who pointed out to me the importance of personal sovereignty. I couldn't have agreed more with him. So thank you, Dave, for your wise words. I'm extremely lucky to have such good friends who keep me grounded, like my friend Dave and also Ash and also Nova. Thank you, friends. You know who you are. My wife also needs credit for this state of mind cast upon me, keep, keeping me grounded, like I said, and giving me confidence to speak the truth. Whether I'm right or wrong on the depopulation issue remains to be seen, but like I said, coincidence is losing its shine and its credence. So I ask you all to not take my word for any of this information, but to go and look for yourself to come to your own conclusions about what is happening in our world. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Thanks for listening. Until next time, to Lou.